culture is a conversation led by leaders, but punctuated by stories. Welcome back to Leading Matters. Great episode today. I think they're all great. I'm biased because I'm the host. Uh, but it's really not me. It's the guests that make the show awesome. And today's no exception, Tim Sanders. He, uh, you might know him from his uh, book in the early thousands called Love is the Killer App. He's written a new book recently called Deal Storming. I had him on the show uh, about a month or two ago. And this episode is fantastic because it covers the very essence of what we discuss here as far as, hey, what's the mission that we're on, the purpose that we're trying to uh, deliver into the marketplace and the difference it makes in people's lives. And, you know, where's our, our, our vision into making that a reality? And most importantly, Tim's book deals with making it a reality by kind of breaking down the silos of, of functional and divisional execution within a company, larger companies to be sure, but I think it's applicable to companies of all sizes. So how do we break down those walls to truly uh, form a, a culture that is driven by a desire to serve the customer and do it in a collaborative way, kind of bring all the minds to the table? He takes it from the approach of sales and he explains why. And again, it's it's decidedly skewed towards larger deals and, and larger uh, companies. But I think the, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, the nuance and the essence of what he's talking about is applicable to companies of all sizes. You're going to love the episode. I, I, I know I did. And especially, you know, stick through the whole thing. He gets into the impact of content marketing at the end and why that uh, typical... Um, execution of content marketing, placing more leads in the top of our funnel really puts us behind the eight ball. So is it driving lead quantity? Perhaps, but it's placing our sales force at a disadvantage. So think about that for a little bit as you jump into this episode, my interview with Tim Sanders, the author of Deal Storming. My guest today is Tim Sanders. Now, Tim was the chief solutions officer at Yahoo, and this was back when Yahoo used to smoke Google on search. And really, Yahoo was one of the only things that seemed to have survived the dot-com crash. So yeah, you got that right. He was at Yahoo when Yahoo really mattered. Now he got that got to Yahoo from the 1999 acquisition of Mark Cuban's Broadcast.com. So yes, also, Tim has worked closely with Mark Cuban. He's authored four books, including the New York Times bestseller, Love is the Killer App. He's the co-founder of the research consultancy, Deeper Media Incorporated, and a top-rated speaker. And I can tell you from experience, I had the pleasure of seeing Tim speak, and he's, he's fantastic. His new book is called Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Now, listen, I could also tell you just from having met Tim you know, once uh, at the event that I saw him speak at, that he's an accessible, thoughtful, a generous leader. And I have to tell you that I'm so thrilled that he's with us today. So, Tim, you know, before we get started, I just want to thank you so much for your time and joining me today on Leading Matters. My pleasure to be with you, Joel. Great. So let's jump right into deal storming. I love the book. I got to tell you, I, when it first came out, you know, I was looking at the uh, book online and I saw that you had some great folks in the back kind of give give the book an, you know, the endorsement. So it really helped me to say, hey, I'm really going to dive into this and see what it's all about. Now, I've read it, but for the benefit of my audience who has not, you know, tell us what deal storming is all about. What's the concept of deal storming? So deal storming is about harnessing the power 
of Group Genius to solve very significant sales and marketing challenges. So the concept is you combine the lateral approach of brainstorming with the very structured approach of deal making to create a process by which when we get together, our meetings are dramatic, we execute, and we dramatically increase our ability to harness innovation. That's, the, that's what deal storming is really about from a how-to standpoint. But behind the scenes, Joel, what the book's really, really about conceptually is it's about building corporate culture that really promotes collaboration across departments. I chose sales because early in my career, that's what I did. I, I was in sales for decades. I ended up my career in human resources, thinking a lot about talent management, acquisition, onboarding, recruiting, those types of of things. And what I understood is that so many companies are sales driven, meaning executives really pay attention to and talk about sales victories. And what I began to understand working for Libby Sartain from Southwest Airlines when she came to Yahoo is that culture is a conversation led by leaders but punctuated by stories about how we do things here successfully. And so when I was researching for the book, I ran into this study I quoted in Chapter 3, the free chapter, MHI Global. This is where they said the world-class sales organizations that beat their rivals by 20%, the only thing they have in common is they're really good at working across departments in pursuit of big opportunities. Mm -hmm. And when I really dug into the research, it wasn't just because they won the big deals. It was because the big deals drove their culture. And it had a cascading effect everywhere. It wasn't just that sales was now good at collaborating with marketing and operations and delivery and finance. It was that product started to collaborate with sales and marketing and operations and finance. And marketing started to collaborate with sales and operations, et cetera. So the book is really about building a collaborative culture using the example of sales to drive that. Well, you know, I, I love that because, you know, on Leading Matters, I talk a lot about culture, passion, purpose, and mission, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I want to get into that in, in, in just a minute. But the way I love you structured the book is that it's very practical and that it really articulates well some of the realities that an organization is faced with and indeed the complexity of, uh, of where the sale is today. So that's kind of at the beginning. And I, I love your analogy because you talk about, you know, video games went from Pong to now we have, you know, Halo and, and World of Warcraft and all these complex video games that, that mm -hmm. some, sometimes you can't beat. And I, I love that, right? Because you say, well, what, what makes us think that the sales process hasn't gained in complexity? So, you know, talk to me a little bit about the, because uh, the sense that I get from too many that cover the, the, the B2B space, especially on the technology side, is that there seems to be a mistaken belief that this golden age of cloud computing means just the opposite, that the sales process becomes easier and more transactional. But indeed, that's not necessarily the case. Can you talk a little bit about, about why that conception might, uh, perception might exist and why the, the process is so complicated today versus, uh, say, 10, 15 years ago? So, yeah, first let me talk about B2B complexity now in sales. But, but I also want to separately address this issue of cloud sales and specifically, Joel, talk about this, this bubble I see sure. in, in SaaS around sales development reps and social selling. So we're going to come back to that in a second because I think your audience will care about it. But Great. first, complexity. So 
Here's the analogy. Sales is like a video game. You, kind of, you, you, you keep leveling up. You start out at the bottom level just trying to make contact, and you kind of level all the way up to when you have a signed contract, right? And when I first started in sales back in the late 1970s, the stuff we sold was very simple. We sold to a very addressable set of decision makers, one, two, at the most, at the most three on the biggest deals, right? And we developed activity management systems, make a lot of calls, make a lot of pitches, be really good at closing, and it worked. If it were a video game, it'd be like Pong or at the worst, Donkey Kong. <laughs> sure. But here's what happens. Over the years, what we sell has gotten more complicated Technology has been infused into everything that we sell. Think about career builder. You mentioned that. I mean, there's a huge digital implementation piece now for a significant career builder deal mm. that not only involves the actual hiring managers, it involves somebody from technology. It's going to involve now somebody from information security. Typically, it's going to involve somebody from purchasing financing or procurement. It may involve now the actual end users who used to not really weigh in on the decision, but today they think they know a little bit about it, and it becomes more strategic to their business. So here's what's happened. In the average B2B sale of all types, of all types, according to corporate ex executive board, there's an average of 5.4 decision makers involved in the sale. And here's what the real problem is. According to IDC, that number goes up 20% year over year as the buyers have become more team-based to drive down the cost of acquisition and ownership. And where it really becomes a, a, a real pressure point for the actual sales executive is that you never get direct contact with at least two of those decision makers. They're sitting out on the edge somewhere. They mm. don't come to your meetings. Sure. They don't dial into your phone calls. So you've got to figure out a very innovative way to sell forward, to be able to either cultivate inside champions and train them or to create I call them communication devices, from analogy to illustration to infographic. you got to create some tool that's able to go throughout all of the decision makers and get them to act. And that's why today, if you look at the average pipeline of deals for the average company in B2B, they'll tell you that 80% of them will end up no decision. Not that they said no, they just can't come to consensus. And that's like the, the worst you know, thing that's going sure. on right now in sales. So, so that's it. That's why sales innovation has become so critical. Quickly, I'll talk about cloud. So there was this dream when, you know, SaaS really started to move up. I'm going to go all the way back to salesforce.com, 1-800-NO-SOFTWARE. You know, all of a sudden now there's thousands and thousands of SaaS companies. And I sit on the board of several of them. I'm involved in the SASTER and the sales hacker community. And the allure of SaaS was that you could create a service that an, a sales development rep could sell without ever having to pick up the phone. So she could just use LinkedIn to like your stuff, comment on your stuff, cultivate a relationship, and then direct message you to establish a demo time and then do the demo and give it to you free. Yeah. And when they detect your first value, then they come and say, we've got these these premium features and then they kind of upsell you over time and it's sure. you know it's the millennials perfect sales job they don't have to have any real-time phone calls there's really no rejection per se <laughs> you never have to ask for the check but here is the problem is twofold one the prospects tolerance for social selling is increasing dramatically if you look at all key metrics that used to drive the social selling idea just a few years ago like Edison's research they're all cut in half 
So, so, so three years ago, almost 45% of all adults would visit a social network like LinkedIn or Facebook uh, an average of six to 12 times a day, and, and, and half of all their visits were to check up on how many people liked or commented on or shared their last update, okay? That number is now cut in half. That ego currency is going down. We don't care about that as much as we used to. Mm. The response rate on, a, on like a LinkedIn message is half what it was three years ago. So anyway, social selling is going to have to be replaced with something else that's new and unexpected and cool. So that's a problem. And the biggest problem though right now in cloud and SaaS is the deals are too small. Because they're going yeah. in free, they're going in free or cheap. They're averaging an a, annual cash value of seven to ten grand, and they're not creating barriers to entry. So what's happening is that a really smart little SaaS cloud startup in San Francisco that's got an elegant mobile product can get kicked out of a big logo account, say like Cisco, because a company that's legacy like Oracle has come in with a not as good product but a smarter sales force and Oracle comes in and says we want to do an omnibus deal for everything that touches this. you got to kick all these startups out to organize your IT and they do it. So, so I see that's the biggest bubble. Too many little deals, no barriers to entry. I saw this before in e-commerce, Joel. I mean I saw this. I said all the time Walmart's going to figure this out. Amway is going to figure this out and they did with Quickstar and when they do they're going to kick out all these little drugstore.coms, etoys.coms. All those little guys are going to all get kicked out because they're just thinking too small. Sure. And that's exactly the problem right now in cloud SaaS. Well, that's, that's, well I love your walkthrough there, right? Because, again, I, that's why I brought it up because I see that SaaS is under the illusion that they don't have to do this sort of deal storming. But also, I think they face the, uh, and is it true? I guess they, I'll ask the question. Is it true that, that, because the deals are so small, because they're so concerned about churn rate and things like that, that, that there's serious cost implications that prevent them from approaching a deal cycle the way you describe it in deal storming. So, you know, is that is that true? One, that, that maybe his costs would prohibit them from being more innovative in how they sell. And two, if it is, how, how do you address the issue you just walked through for a, a SaaS company to, to deal storm in a cost-restrictive environment? So, you know, deal storming really is about those larger deals, those six figure and up deals. And so your average SaaS company, they're not recruiting for that. So they're not recruiting a person who is fearless in real time. They're not recruiting a person who can even say the number two million <laughs> in a meeting. <laughs> they're not recruiting people who have a history of team-based selling or teamwork in their last job. I mean, that's a big thing. I've been emphasizing in the recruiting space is that if you hire someone with a strong track record in their last job, chances are it won't transfer to their new job. In fact, they're likely to be a lone wolf. Um, and if you want to ask the perfect question in an interview to figure out if they're going to be able to collaborate and deal storm, just ask them, in your last job, what project did you volunteer for outside of sales, outside of your job description? What did you volunteer for? Why did you volunteer to help? What was your role and how did it turn out? So this is a trick question. Um, any answer is right. <laughs> it's, like, it's like asking in the old days, like, tell me about the last book you read. They really don't care what book it is. They just want to know you're a reader. Yeah. And what, what I've learned is when a person says, well, 
I volunteered for this, this, this voice of the customer marketing thing. And I volunteered for it because I thought I had information they didn't have from their surveys. And my role was to be part of the research team. And it turned out pretty well. We launched it within a year. I want that person because he knows how to volunteer outside of the group. And he's probably building a collaborative web he can leverage later when he's got a challenge. If he says, I didn't volunteer I was heads down doing my job trying to make my number. That person's not going to be very collaborative in the new environment. So that's a little secret sauce there. The SaaS guys don't hire like that. They either take the greenies who will work for nothing and some stock options, and those are the SDRs. And for their business development reps, they take somebody who's got a history of working at a startup that got bought. And that is a really bad recruiting strategy. That's interesting. I love that you went, right, because I always, uh, not always, but I, I typically like to ask my guests about the talent acquisition process, so I love that you went there, right? And, and you know, it reminds me of an example. I, you know, I was just thinking about this yesterday. I was paging through your book about uh, but early in my career, there was a task that nobody wanted to do, and I, I volunteered to do it, right? And it was probably the biggest differentiator because what it did for me is it exposed me to so many surprising areas of the business that I wasn't aware of, mm-hmm. so, you know, and that and I, I directly benefited from that. And you know, looking back, this was like twenty some years ago. It made a big impact on on my career. What can we do as leaders to foster? Because again, I think the, the way I read the book, it's like, hey, that's that's the destination, right? But how do we get there as far as creating this culture of, you know, we look workforce engagement is so overused. But how do we create these opportunities for our workforce to be uh, more collaborative, to uh, raise their hands when an opportunity comes up, to be on the look out for opportunities where they can inject some value from their perspective. I think we have to make it part of the talent management life cycle, right? So we need to be very specific in hiring that we're looking for team players. We're looking for people that have a history of cross-discipline collaboration. When we hire, we need to ask questions about it. We need to make that part of the criteria. When we think about onboarding, we need to introduce those case studies in sales, in marketing, in operations, in product, where teams coming together across the lines created the biggest victories in the history of the company. That's really important to drive the culture home. We need to make it uh, part of the training process. We need to train people on how to facilitate cross-department meetings. I think that's more important than training people on how to use spreadsheets or PowerPoint software. We need to make it part of the rewards process. At companies I've worked with that really understood the value of collaboration in the world of sales, collaborative performance can be as much as 25% of the annual review grade, which determines bonus. So there's a lot of ways you can bake this in, and I think it's really dotted throughout the talent cycle. But on a very practical basis, the way an executive can make this work is to take a look at an opportunity that's big, that will define the company, and you're stuck. And to use that opportunity as your beachhead to create an initiative, a team, a deal storm, whatever you want to call it, and go win. Because when everybody knows it's big and we're stuck and you use a new process to go in, the floodgates open. Because what happens is that people realize that collaboration doesn't slow things down and take away control because that's the barrier. I mean collaboration works but the reason we don't do it more is because sales is in this silo where they believe that it will slow everything down and they'll lose all the control of the sale. They call it giving in to the land of no. Mm -hmm. It's like legal and finance (laughs) or making your bet on the world of slow which would be marketing and operations and customer service. So they don't want to do it but when they see someone else do it and it gets a big deal unstuck they're willing to try it, and I think that's the secret. Get that first deal, collaborate around it, 
just like in chapter three, the career builder story. You know, I mean, Alyssa D'Amato's at career builder saved the biggest account in the history of the company that had left them, Allegis. And everybody knows this in the industry, that Allegis is really big, right? Mm -hmm. And in the staffing world, when Allegis fires you, um, that's a big deal. So, so Alyssa comes back, she saves the account through deal storming, and then she goes a step higher and then inks the biggest deal in career builder history to get Allegis to outsource SaaS capability to them to build a career site. And she does it by building a 12-person Justice League kind of team across the company, across the country. And when I interviewed her after it was all over, what I learned is that it had a huge cascading affected the company. So now the technology group in Atlanta collaborates a lot more with people across Chicago's headquarters. Everybody in products doing a better job working together with marketing. Everybody's kind of figured out that together they, they win. And it was all from that one deal yeah. that was too big to lose. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me dive into that a little bit because I did love the Career Builder example. And I actually was in the staffing. That's when I met you at Career Builder's uh, staffing yeah. uh, executive summit that they do in, every summer. And so I, I knew it was good for me to read that because I understand the players. We were big career builder users, right? One of the things I found interesting in that story is that it really underscores that the, the challenge the sales rep has in, in building that deal storming team. So, so, you know, how do we enable this in the face of, say, a product team or maybe a company culture that insists that the sales rep sell what we have today and not what we haven't yet built. I mean, you hear that quite a bit, right? That, hey, go sell what we have today. Your job is to sell what we have on the shelf, right? So, you know, how do you, again, almost a cultural idea, again, how do you do, how does a sales rep, uh, you gave the criteria for maybe picking that one deal, mm -hmm. but, you know, Alyssa in the story seemed to be the champion of this, and it wasn't easy. I mean, it doesn't sound like an easy thing that she did, right? So help us understand what are the, the things that we as a sales professional should do to, to face down those challenges, to make it a reality, to collaborate around a big deal like that? Well, you're going to love the first answer, and that is expand the purpose behind the deal. So when she was trying to get people in the reporting function to work with her on that side-by-side -side shootout with Monster to win back the account, and she had to go across Eric Gilpin, who you know, um, he said she met with like 50 people inside corporate to try mm -hmm. to get the right kind of allegiance reporting so they could win the shootout. And what he, what he said is that she didn't keep going around saying, hey, this is a $2 million opportunity we're trying to win back. She never talked that language because she knew they really wouldn't care. Really, honestly, it's a private company. They're just not going to dial into that. Yeah. She had a big why. And it was this. We were fired by Allegis because of a misunderstanding about a price increase. In other words, they felt betrayed. Which, what does this mean? Our reputation is on the line. We're better than this. We don't get fired by clients. We make them delighted. And so she'd march around the company saying, it's our reputation. It's almost like back to the future, right? Where the Christopher Lloyd guy shows up at the end and says, we've got to get to the future. Our, your kids are in trouble, you know, and it just mobilizes everybody. So she understood how to always march the big why. Even when she was trying to build that SaaS deal, which they didn't have for sale yet, the big why was that it was going to change the future of career builder to move from the job board, which they were all tired of being called a job board, to being a strategic technology partner to everybody from enterprise to staffing. And that was a big, huge why that allowed her to march around the company. That's the first thing. The second thing was she was as curious as Columbo 
And nothing builds relationships more than curiosity and interest in other people. So as she would go to groups like Technology with, with Eric Presley, their CTO, and say, I need you to help us on this demo, or I need you to come to this presentation, and he's like, man, we're trying to build the talent network. We're heads down. We're overcommitted already. She began to ask him a lot of questions about the talent network and how they were building that and what kind of customer feedback they were getting in real time. And she kind of figured out by asking enough questions that there was a real strategic opportunity for this sales thing to actually help them on their talent thing. And that's where Eric said, first of all, he respected all the questions she asked. She'd never met a salesperson that was that interested in what they did. But B, she convinced him that the Allegis deal could create real-time feedback from a customer for their engineers because it was a kind of a, a look-alike to their talent network. And that's when he said, I override everybody that says no. It's on the road, man. Let's do it. And so she was real smart about asking questions. Here's the third and final thing. When you do get people to say, I'll help you, you're not asking them to come to meetings or do work. You're asking them to join a team that's driving behind a cause. And she very often recognized people for their efforts. She celebrated the smallest victories. She brought lunches. She sent thank you cards. And then Matt Ferguson, the Love Cat Ferguson, CEO of the company, he ends up giving eight engineers out of Atlanta the Spirit of Excellence Award at the annual sales conference a year later after they win the deal. And he made a really big deal out of it. And all those things together really drive cooperation across the lines. Because remember, collaboration comes from a phrase, goes all the way back to Western Europe, to confer with the enemy. <laughs> so you, so I, I just bring this point up again. Collaboration is baked into our DNA as a bad thing um, unless you really have to do it. It's like a last resort thing, right? And so my goal is to convince people it's actually a first response thing. That, you know, man, there's so much packed in there because I have uh, so many thoughts about it. One, I love the way you kind of uh, use the example of, hey, this was a, a seminal moment for the culture of career building and where they were headed and that she used that seminal moment to kind of drive uh, you know, the rallying cry. But also, as, as you were speaking there, I mean, listen, leadership has got to be strong and confident to make something like that happen. Like, that just doesn't happen overnight, right? In other words, if I don't have a leader in place, I guess, let me ask it this way. Let me ask the question this way. If I'm a leader that wants to look for these big opportunities and wants to drive this rallying cry in a direction that you just described that Alyssa did at Career Builder, I mean, and I'm faced with resistance because maybe our culture isn't set up that way. Like, what's the one thing that they should start to do to uh, to shine the light on, hey, this uh, collaborative execution is going to help us take this big deal down. And oh, by the way, it'll have deeper implications for who we are as a company. There's a couple of things you can do because I've had a lot of consulting clients that are like, oh, gosh, this is so not us, but we got to do it. Like I work with defense contractors. Believe me, that's not the way they work. So here's what you do. First of all, you got to create internal advocacy. So I suggest creating a little presentation based on research that says, if we were able to become this, this is where our revenue would go. If we were able to start doing this, this is where our talent acquisition and our level of service satisfaction would go. And the more you talk about those things internally, the more people begin to change their attitudes and opinions. And if that doesn't work, the really good thing you could do is to create a case study of where a competitor kicked our butts because they worked better across departments than we did. And that's the secondary thing I've had some clients do because competition – 
in a market culture can really get people off the dime to say, well, if they're doing it, we must do it or we're going to lose. The, the last thing you can do if you've really got a culture that's just steeped on silo think is to create a presentation and, and do it a lot internally, make it part of all your conferences. And the presentation should focus on the idea that today's buyer, our customers, our prospects, our future partners are no longer buying in a single discipline. They're all buying multidisciplinary. It's creating a competitive disadvantage for us going alone. And that, it, to use the phrase of a General Stanley McChrystal um, in his great book, Team of Teams, it takes a network to defeat a network. So, you know, if nothing else, these burning platform messages can really help change opinions. But it's going to take some time. You need to put that presentation together today. You need to find times to talk about it from standing staff meetings to conferences to internal communications across your intranet. That's something you can do to really beat that drum as you're looking for an individual example to mobilize around to create that cascading cultural effect. Wow, that's great. That's just such great tangible advice. I know, you know, it's funny because I was reminded of your work and I, I got introduced to your book from uh, Ryan Estes, who I know you know. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I love at the end of Ryan, what I love about Ryan's talks and his his his, uh, his blog posts, even, is he always kind of implements a take action now plan, right? So you just like laid out this take action now plan. That's great. Hey, Tim, listen, I know we're bumping up on 30 minutes. Could, would it be okay if I just ask you just one more question before uh, we, we wrap up here? Absolutely. But let me say one thing first. So for all of you listening, uh, if you want to read this Alyssa uh, Career Builder Allegiance story, it's free. You can download it at dealstorming.net front slash free. That's dealstorming.net front slash free. Check uh, it out. Great. And I will, uh, I will add that in the show notes also. That's great, Tim. Great. I'm glad I didn't know that was free. That's good news. Uh, so listen, one, one last area I want to talk about, and I want to look at marketing in general. Um, because it's see, and again, this is more of my kind of um, supposition based upon who I talk to and the business that I'm in. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it seems to me that the push towards content marketing over the past almost decade has had the unintended uh, effect here of forcing marketing into a, almost an exclusive focus on campaign lead generating activity, which is certainly important, but a lot of their activity lives there these days, right? So as these tactics get better and better, which is a good thing, but it also doesn't set the table for sales as much, right? Uh, you know, influencing the influencers, mapping out content against the sales process, enabling sales to have, to be out in front of the deal storming activity. So that, that seems to be a victim of this new content marketing focus. So I guess, the, do, you, do, you, do you agree with that would be the first question. And then should leaders see content creation more as a catalyst for prescribed, you know, prescriptive selling and setting up the conversations for this deal storming methodology? Very, very good question and a burning question, right? I mean, there, there is no doubt in my mind that content marketing is going to be the ultimate lead gen for the next five to 10 years, right? It's going to eclipse advertising and direct marketing and even cold prospecting. It just will. However, as you mentioned, uh, if it's not done correctly, it leads to smaller test and scale, super safe, SDR-driven sales process. And we've talked earlier about why that's a bad thing or it's a risky thing. So, so here's my thing. Strategically speaking, the value to me of content marketing is it allows us to get the sales rep in front of the prospect earlier in the buying journey. 
I'm going to go back to corporate executive board research. The, 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 they, this is really good research pool, by the way. They talk to actual buyers about how they choose suppliers. They have a lot of people in their structured surveys. Did you know that the average B2B buyer is almost 60% through their buying journey before they ever talk to the sales rep for the first time? And bad things happen when you get brought in that late. It puts pressure on pricing because they, there's just, just the transparency with web marketing and web distribution is unbelievable. But more important, now the sales rep has to do so much unteaching because the paradigm is set, the uh, problem yes. is defined, the solutions are isolated, the rep comes in, they're just another voice, and, they, and so much of the research the buyer's doing is wrong. It's like when you got a spot on your arm and you go onto Google and you say, i got a spot on my arm, what's the first result? You're going to die, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, you know, the content marketing is so amateurish for so many companies that are trying to sell something, they promote a lot of misinformation. So what I like is the idea, and there's a great book on this called uh, The Challenger Customer. Uh, I Challenger love, I Customer, love, uh, right? yeah, Brent Addison, so, I had Brent on my show. So he's a nutbag. I love that guy. <laughs> he, he's, the, he's the Colonel Clink of motivational speaking. I love that dude. Brent and Matt and all those guys are so brilliant. But anyway, here's what they talk about is that Really good content marketing is like a dog whistle for the mobilizers inside prospect companies. And very early on, those most mobilizers, they see the content where you're like 10% into the journey. And the content really challenges them to think about the real problem they're facing. Um, and it reshapes everything. So I think that's the value is content marketing that gets us in early, gets us in front of the buyer when they're still trying to figure out what the real problem is before they even enter the solution set. I think if we focus on that instead of just content marketing to fill the top of the funnel, which is the current emphasis, I think we're going to do a lot better to get reps in there, to look at bigger opportunities, to do more winner-take-all deals and create barriers to entry with more strategic strategic selling approaches that are very aligned with marketing. The MHI global study I mentioned earlier, it says that these world-class organizations are 300% more likely to have strategic alignment between marketing and sales than those that aren't world-class. That is fantastic stuff, Tim. I love it. And I'm going to leave it right there. So once again, we've been speaking with Tim Sanders. You have to check out Deal Storming. And Tim, tell us again where they can get that free chapter. They can get the free chapter at dealstorming.net front slash free. Very good. Go ahead and check that out. I'll put it in the show notes as well. The book is Deal Storming, the secret weapon that can solve your toughest sales challenges. And I think you could tell if you've made it through the past 30 minutes with Tim that it's, it's, it's really impactful, important work that he's done here that's going to change the way you go about taking down some of your largest deals. Tim, thank you so much for sharing your insight and wisdom and, and joining me today on Leading Matters. My pleasure, Joel. Great to be with you.